to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched Rock of Ages. A small town girl and a city boy meet on the Sunset Strip while pursuing their Hollywood... God damn it. Nope. Nope. You have to keep all this. Their Hollywood dreams. I can't even make it through the synopsis of the film without dying of laughter. It's like, really? That's what they did? <laughs> Fuck this movie. Fuck it so hard. They stole it from Journey, you bastards. I cannot. <sighs> <laughs> this movie is special in so many ways. <laughs> it's so special. This was part of a string of movies that just about re-killed the movie musical. Like, Oh, sure. We got we got very close to just losing it all over again because mm-hmm. of bullshit that they tried to put out. Mm-hmm. And I, I got to be upfront here before we ever get into this. I hate the idea and the concept of the jukebox musical. I understand it has a place. Sure. I understand that there are some that are very successful. Mm-hmm. And I would exempt something like a review where you've got like these, you know, six by Sondheim or Fosse or something like sure. that, which there's no pretensions. We're doing numbers mm-hmm. that collectively make up this experience of a show. But this, th- there's no plot. <laughs> mm-hmm. The jukebox musical, to me, it-, it doesn't work because you're reverse engineering a story. And you're often doing it in the most slapdash way possible. Not always. Mm-hmm. There's exceptions to every rule. But seeing Mamma Mia on stage, mm-hmm. I never saw the movie, but seeing it on stage really drove this home for me of like, you've got to have a really good idea in mind because otherwise it's just, we just needed some really fucking stupid excuse to put a bunch of ABBA songs mm-hmm. together. That's exactly what it was. I hate Mamma Mia. I, I love ABBA. There's a difference. And where I think this musical is successful is that it's not using music from only one performer. True. They're all from a specific genre. So hearing all these songs together, Makes total sense. Absolutely. Um, This is a playlist, if you will. But yeah, the framework story is not very compelling. Oh, it's boring. Well, so the idea is good. You have this mythic rock star. You have these two characters who are going to fall in love. And you have some background characters who are like a part of the mix, but are not the main characters. And then you have another character He was actively against this music. Cool. Fine. That is our basis. Cool. Can also make sense with these songs. Now, we have not seen the stage musical, which a lot of people love because it's just fun. Cool. I can get on board with that. You like the thing you like because it's just fun. I'm not here to judge you. I do, but that's fine. But where this movie fails is that the connective tissue is so bad and then the dialogue to go with it is awful and then the performances are mostly bad there's nothing that saves this movie nothing <laughs> it's a it's a slow motion car wreck there are parts that are entertaining sure yeah. there are moments where i was like that was really good or like oh i don't hate this like if this was ri- if the dialogue was written better i like this situation that's fine but ultimately this movie just falls totally flat they fucked the musical okay the musical is an entirely different story. Okay, see, now that makes me want to go watch, see the actual musical. The reason this became a cult hit and mm-hmm. got the profile that it did was because of the story mm-hmm. and because it represented the dirtiness and the sleaziness of the 80s. Okay. In an endearing way. Sure. But the musical was very R-rated. And they sanitized the shit out of it. Mm, yes. For this movie. I can feel that. Like, everything is shiny. Everything in that bar is shiny. They all look like they're in a music video and not what the fucking Whiskey A Go Go would have felt like in 1987. Mm-hmm. Because it was gross. All of those guys were gross. Like, nothing about this was clean. And nothing about any of those rockers feels like a threat, which just makes the whole concerned moms of it all mm-hmm. mean nothing. Because the only reason the tipper gores of the world were able to gain any traction is because 
it was a little dangerous to be a rock fan. Yeah. There was a good chance some shit was going to go down at the club and you were going to have to figure your way out of it. Like, there's none of that. Mm -hmm. It's very simple. This movie does not rock in any form or fashion. Mm -hmm. And it should. There's no reason it shouldn't. Because even, like, there were moments where we'd look at each other and it was like, well, this song just feels ridiculous. Or it's too on the nose. But then there were moments where I went, that was a good choice. Mm-hmm. That's a great choice of song. Performance sucks, but that's the perfect song for that moment. Yeah. Just top down, the creative team of this movie fucked it. Okay. Because it should have been so much better. It should have been R-rated. I absolutely agree. 1,000%. But like one of the things in the musical world is that they market it so much as being a family thing. Because... In our lifetime, movies that are musicals are Disney movies. Yep. Like primarily. So I like I get that, but there are musicals that you go see live on stage and you're like, this is not for kids. This is not a, a kid themed musical. Well, let's be very clear. The studio wasn't responsible for this problem. Oh, okay. It's our director. Okay. So the studio isn't the one who said this has to be coming at a PG 13. No. Okay. We'll get there when we get there, but let's start with the budget. Okay. <laughs> this movie cost $75 million. <laughs> yeah, you saw how it looked. This movie cost $75 million fucking dollars. How much of that was Tom Cruise? Uh, I'm sure 20 Okay. That's pretty much his standard rate. I'm not surprised, but still. <laughs> and he wasn't producing this. No, of course not. <laughs> no. It made 38500000 in the U.S., and worldwide, it made just under $60 million. Yeah. It's a flop. It's a full-on flop. Total flop. And everybody knew it when they saw the trailer. Yeah, because I don't think there's anything in this movie that's redeeming to put in a trailer. I remember the sort of underground bubbling up, because we... We knew theater people, so we would hear things. Mm-hmm. You know, we would hear about Rock of Ages and be like, well, this sounds dumb, but people keep saying they love it. And like, it's weird. And it's, it's sure. it was the weird one off jukebox musical that people were like, you know, actually, there's something to this thing. I don't mm-hmm. get it, but it works. And then we saw the trailer for this and it was just like, well, this looks like a hot pile of steaming garbage. Mm-hmm. And it turns out we were right. <laughs> okay. Despite that. The opening at $60 million is the seventh best ever for a musical. That's so sad. It's just because of how much money it cost. Still. And what's really sad is you get none of that. Mm -hmm. You see none of that. The Hollywood sequence they filmed, they filmed that on a landfill in Florida. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) It's just trash. Mm -hmm. They literally took a pile of money and set it on fire. For this movie. That's exactly what they did. I want to be angrier at this movie than I am, but there are moments where like some of the acting and some of the singing works, so I can't mm-hmm. like fully just tank it. But it really is just a studio just shoving garbage, be like, you like this, right? You'll take this garbage from us. Mm. <sighs> no, thank you. All right, well, let's talk about our writing and let's start with some interesting notes. From the writer of the original musical, who also had a hand in the screenplay. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is his only film credit. It's Chris, it's Chris Dorenzio. This is his only real credit. He's worked on some other theater things. Mm-hmm. But really, this is the only thing he's really written that made any big splash. Okay. He is currently working on a screenplay called Always on My Mind about a rock star connecting with a son he never knew. Mm-hmm. Dorenzio has been very upfront about being incredibly disappointed in this movie. Mm -hmm. First of all, the story was radically changed, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. The fact that they didn't cast Constantine Maroulis of American Idol fame, who originated this role, Mm -hmm. he really questioned, why the fuck didn't you hire him? You got an unknown anyway. And all of the sheen they put on every bit of the movie, especially Mm -hmm. the singing performances. Yeah. His quote, it may have looked like the 80s, but it's missing the dirty likability that made the 80s awesome, unquote. Mm-hmm. And he has stated that if they ever remake this, so he's not discounting that possibility. That's good. 
that he will very much try to have it done outside of the studio system. Well, I think you can make this movie inside the studio system, but the success of a movie musical, especially based on an already established stage musical, is keeping the vibe. (laughs) And they lost it completely. Yeah, you have to keep the vibe. You have to keep the energy. I like it when it makes sense to cast the original actors or performers. I also like when they take a chance, especially when they're trying to make a cast more diverse than the stage play has typically been in the past. I'm always I'm always interested in that. But you still need to serve the film. And they didn't do any of that. The biggest note that he has that I really clued in on, other than the obvious, Mm -hmm. is the sheen on the vocal performances. Mm -hmm. The 80s were not a time of perfection in vocal performance. Mm -hmm. If you listen to these guys, like, yes, they would put tons and tons of overdubbing on these vocals. But like, if they're in a live performance, mm-hmm. it should sound a hell of a lot more raw than it is. They should not sound like Disney musical performers. Yeah. And almost all of them do. Or they're Alec Baldwin and they're clearly just done. <laughs> Which is fine. I think that works for his character. It honestly does. Like the only person who gets approximately close is Tom Cruise. And even then, he's doing like a 90% impression of Axl Rose. Which is fine. That's a good pull. Let's talk about what they changed from the musical. Okay. First of all, there is no mothers protesting in the musical. Really? That doesn't exist. See? Okay. On stage, Lonnie acts as the narrator for the show. Okay. Fuck yes. Russell Brand is our narrator through this weird wild world. Oh, that would have made total sense. Mm Mm-hmm. In the musical, German developers have come into town Mm -hmm. to turn the Sunset Strip into a clean, family-friendly place. Okay. Love it. German villains in the 80s? Yes. Yeah, that's pretty spun on. (laughs) God help me, you could have gotten David Hyde Pierce here. Ooh. It's just in my mind right away. Mm Mm-hmm. So, Arsenal is being brought to the Bourbon to perform their final show to fight against the German developers. Mm -hmm. And instead of having... Patricia Whitmore and the Whitmores for mayor, we have Regina, the city planner, who is trying to support the strip and the life of the Sunset Strip. Mm -hmm. One of the German developers falls for Regina, so that makes everything more complicated. But the biggest thing, the biggest mistake here is that right near the end, we still have this whole like Sherry and Drew chased fame and don't find it, right? Sure. And it hits rock bottom. And Drew's not sure what to do. And Lonnie comes out, breaks the fourth wall Mm -hmm. and says, the writer's doing this to us. We're all characters in a musical and he's making us miserable. But you can give us a happy ending by going and getting Sherry. (laughs) Stacey Jacks is a villain. Mm -hmm. He's just the bad guy. There is no constant sack character. There's no Rolling Stone thing. Mm -hmm. There is an interview, but he's a total sleazeball. So Drew and Sherry realize they don't need fame to be in love. Stacy has to flee to Uruguay after getting charged with statutory rape. Franz and Regina get together. Dennis leaves the bar to Lonnie and then passes away. And Sherry and Drew start a family in suburban Glendale. What the fuck is this movie? It's such a better musical, right? Like, I'm still thrown off. But like, how did you get from that to this? The musical is such a fun chaos weirdness Mm -hmm. that's totally playing into the fact of as a fucking stupid show, but it's the 80s. We can do what we want. And Mm -hmm. I the the thing that I cannot get away from is that the whole show, they're breaking the fourth wall. Yeah, that's the biggest thing of the musical. Like it's a whole meta musical. So why didn't you take that angle? Yeah, it fucks the whole movie up. And add on top of that, that the musical is much raunchier, much dirtier, and it plays into that 80s-ness of it all. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's probably like the greatest musical in the world, but I can see what he's doing is that we're going to play every 80s trope, and then we're going to show how that really doesn't play out well for people. Yeah. Like, Drew and Sherry are going to get chewed up and spat out by the entertainment industry, mm-hmm. and then we're going to understand, oh... What if they actually got some agency and decided to be happy and everything winds up happy for everybody in the way that 
it would in real life instead of, you know, crazy musical world. Mm -hmm. There's a concept. There's a thought process. Like I said, I'm not saying it's good, but I'm saying there's something there. Yeah, there is something there. And I'm interested in that. But this is just, nope. And they just took all of that and threw it out the window and made Boilerplate Musical the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. And they decided they wanted a gigantic star, so now they had to make it into a hero character. So Stacy has to take up a third of the movie. Yep. When originally it was all about Drew and Sherry. Like I And there's a whole bunch of other stuff about the musical, but it, they just they took what was an actual story and turned it into just a bunch of tropes. Yeah. And let's talk about who turned it into tropes. Mm. First up, Justin Thoreau. Sorry, what? Yes, before this, he wrote Tropic Thunder and Iron Man 2. After this, he wrote Zoolander 2, and he's acted in a couple of things. You know, he's had some starring roles. Yeah, he co-wrote this screenplay. So, having liked the other things he's written, (laughs) he clearly has some talent. Who's the other writer? I need to know. Our other writer is Alan Loeb. Before this, he wrote Things We Lost in the Fire, 21, Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps, The Switch, The Dilemma. Just go with it. After this, here comes the boom. So undercover, collateral beauty, the space between us, and the only living boy in New York. Okay. These two guys are the worst people for this project. Because, <laughs> like, I can see Justin Throat being like, let me be a punch up guy. Let me write some funny shit because that's what I've written in the past. Cool. Yes. Totally fine. Or it could be the other guy doing that job because he's been on dick and fart joke movies for a long time. Huh? Either one of those guys. Where's the guy who knows about musicals? There isn't one. Apparently, they thought the guy who wrote the musical. Except that he's never written a screenplay before. Which, okay, you partner them together, but that's still a very different skill. I don't have a problem with a guy who writes a musical to then help write the screenplay. If he's got good screenplay guys who are like, yes, our whole job is to keep the essence of your stage musical. It's almost like these guys went to the musical. We're like, oh, we like the songs, but we hate everything else. So we're not doing that. Well, let me tell you who very much did. Oh, okay. That's our director. What? Adam Shankman. Before this, Adam Shankman directed The Wedding Planner, A Walk to Remember, Bringing Down the House, The Pacifier, Cheaper by the Dozen 2, Hairspray, and Bedtime Stories. After this, he directed What Men Want and will be directing Disenchanted. He is also one of the original producers on the Step Up films. Okay. Hairspray is amazing. Okay. Hairspray the musical is an amazing film. That whole story is nuts. That movie is great. I have basically no qualms with that film. The Step Up films, I'm also a big fan of because I just like dancey films. We've talked about this. How did this happen? He admitted he was not fond of this musical. Mm-hmm. And it This is public. Like, this is in interviews. Mm -hmm. He vowed to, quote, fix its problems. Okay. He decided it had to be toned down for a general audience. The studio had nothing to do with it. It was Shankman. And I guarantee you, Shankman brought these two writers in to fix Dorenzio's musical. So therein lies our problem. Mm -hmm. He's the exact wrong person to do this movie because he didn't like the source material at all. and. That's fine if you want to do a inspired by, but that's not what this is. That's not what this build is. Like, this is the movie version of the stage musical. No. What a nightmare. No. And that's just, that makes me so mad that he did that to this show. Because you know that kills the Broadway show. Yeah. Like, I want to see the Broadway show in spite of this movie because I want to see what it could have been. But what a movie should do for a, a, a musical is make you want to go experience that live. It should make you fall in love with it if you aren't already. Or if you're already in love with it, the movie musical should give you another flavor, another layer to the love you've already got for it. To decide to take a cult property and... and- Honestly, this happens way too often in Hollywood, period. Sure. So it is successful because of how specifically surreal, weird, Mm -hmm. you know, raunchy, R-rated it is. Mm -hmm. And then decide, 
well, we can make it a four-quadrant movie. We can make it a movie that everybody will like. They do it all the fucking time. And they decided to do it with this musical. They decided, well, we can take this thing and, and we can make it a fucking runaway hit. And we'll just put every star in it. And it's all songs everybody knows already. All they were thinking were dollar signs. Shankman's the executive producer of this movie. It's so annoying. It's all about the fucking money. Again, they literally thought we could just shove money at this and it'll work. And instead, they just set it on fire. Yep. Let's just set some money on fire for no reason. (laughs) Sounds good. And Chris Terenzio is just sitting there. I understand as a first time writer. There's a level at which you could go, okay, I understand. Maybe we need to make this a PG-13. So maybe we need to figure out some more subtle ways to make those jokes. Maybe we cut this number because it's just a little too much for this, right? Mm-hmm. Like even the way that we've done this movie and structured this movie, there's still enough of a through line that I could see a world in which the script you've come up with could be workable. I wouldn't say it'd be good, but I could say it could be workable, watchable, mm-hmm. but nothing that you did did that and you just shoved the guy out who actually created the magic in the first place like this is this is just hollywood grotesqueness at its worst mm-hmm. who could have been better first of all literally anyone yeah agreed at this point but in talks to direct this was the director of once john carney oh wow okay He wasn't familiar with the music. He was uncomfortable with the budget because it was skyrocketing because of who was involved. Mm -hmm. So he's like, this is too big for me. Fair. But imagine you've got a sillier musical, but the guy who directed like the most intimate musical ever made Mm -hmm. probably still wouldn't work. The script is garbage, but. Yeah, we need need a different creative team behind this. I Well. Doesn't get any better from here, folks. Nope. Let's talk about our cast. Okay. First up, we have Julianne Huff playing Sherry Christian. Mm, girl cannot act her way out of the paper bag. Now, I'm not going to go through credits for every single person involved here, but for our two leads, because they're relative unknowns and we'll probably never talk about them again, let's go ahead and give some of their credit, shall we? Before this... Julian Huff was in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Burlesque, and Footloose. After this, Safe Haven, Paradise, Curve, Dirty Grandpa, Bigger, and she played Jolene in Dolly Parton's Heartstrings. Also, she like dances and stuff sometimes. Yeah. Why? <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to quote Claudia from our West Side Story episode. For a dollar, name a singer. I, I don't want to. What? For a dollar, name a singer. Why Julianne Huff? Wasn't she just in Footloose? Th- that was right before this. Oh, God. And this, ugh. Ugh. No. No, it's just awful. I mean, okay. She's not unwatchable. I will at least give her that. But, like, there's all these moments where she's making, like, rookie acting mistakes. Where she's, like, smiling through a dark scene mm-hmm. because she doesn't know how to get her face to do the right thing on camera. Yeah. There's all these just rookie things that you're going, oh, my God, why did we put you in this role? I know. Have her be one of the waitresses that, like, is super fucking amazing at dancing or something. Sure. But why the lead? Who thought that was a good idea? I mean, hats off to her agents. That's fair. Because they did their job. (laughs) Like, they worked hard for that money. I do not want to trash Julianne Huff. She is an incredibly talented person, especially because of her dancing. This role is so much for somebody who has never shown us that sort of ability before. Sure. This is not a dancing first role. No. So she's just not right for it. Who could have been better? Taylor Swift. I mean, Taylor Swift can sing. Taylor Swift can sing. And she can dance. We haven't ever really seen her act. Mm, A little bit. She was in Valentine's Day. Okay. And she played a bubbly, dumb, dumb teenager with Taylor Lautner. So she, like, which is fine. I mean, Sherry Christian does not have to be the most, like, amazing actor ever. Sure. She doesn't have to be amazing. But she has to be believable. Taylor Swift could have done this. But also, I mean, part of this problem, too, is that 
I don't care if it's Julianne Huff. I don't care if it's Taylor Swift. I don't care who it is. You've got to dirty them up a bit. Yeah. She's a rocker kid from the Midwest going to the fucking Sunset Strip. Yeah. Get a little grimier with her. She does need to be grimy. They all need to be a lot more sweaty. (laughs) I think that's fair. For fuck's sake. And way more Aquanet. What the fuck are we doing? Yeah. Clearly nobody watched a fucking 80s music video before doing this. No, they really didn't. They they look nothing like anyone from that time. Mm. All right, let's move on to Diego Boneda playing Drew Boley. Before this, he did mostly Mexican television. He was a pretty well-known singer in Mexico, and then he guest starred on Pretty Little Liars in the new 90210. After this, Summer Camp, Scream Queens, Before I Fall, Monster Party, and Terminator Dark Fate, and he will be appearing in a new version of Father of the Bride. Oh, okay. What do we think of Diego Boneda in this movie? He's not bad, but he's not given anything good to work with. He seems like a fucking block of granite to me. He does to a degree. I won't I won't argue that. But like I can't blame him for that. <sighs> I, I guess that's fair. Like it's it's that Michael York thing of like I'm looking at you and I see nothing between your your eyes. Like fair. You just seem like I am a body in this space singing words and that's it. I get nothing from Drew. I yeah, I don't I don't think that's unfair. And like part of the problem is I could be okay with the cheesiness of the writing and the dialogue Mm -hmm. if you had two people who were engaging enough that made me go, I get it. We're playing this for laughs. We know it's silly. Yeah. Neither of them have the self-awareness as actors to pull that off. Agreed. And like, that's what's so frustrating to me. Again, who could have been better? Constantine Maroulis, who played this role on Broadway. He instead plays a record executive for one little scene in the movie. And that's fine. I know he was a little bit older at that point. So if you really want the young guy, you got to go somebody newer. But then why don't you have Constantine be like the Alec Baldwin role? Like he didn't have to be super old, but then he could have still had a really prominent role in the film, which would have made, you know, stage fans happy because he's been fairly in the movie. And also, holy fuck, when he sings, I was like, that's a that's an 80s rock voice. That's a goddamn 80s rock voice. Which is what he was known for when he was on American Idol. Fucking hell. Okay, also who could have been better auditioned for the role? Jamie Dornan. Okay. Charisma. Definitely charisma. That's why I'm kind of going, okay. Don't know if he can sing, but charisma. Yeah, okay. I don't hate it. Jamie Dornan and Taylor Swift, I'm a thousand percent more confident in than these two. Agreed. Agreed. (laughs) Uh, Yes. That is the correct thing. Like, at least something would happen between the two of them. Yeah. Oh, my God. All right. Let's talk about the rest of this main cast. It's a lot of people. Let's start with Russell Brand. He's a British guy. He sounds like he's from London. I love him. I wanted more of him. They wasted him. He, Him in the narrator role, doing that, fabulous. And also just let him be Russell Brand, which is dirty and gritty. And cheeky and saying inappropriate things. That's what I want from Russell Brand. He's perfect for that spot. But the script doesn't let him do that. My favorite moments, first of all, where you're calling out, it's like, oh, he's clearly just improving this. Yeah. But him getting up on that stage and introducing the bands and throwing out Shakespearean insults. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I love him. I love him so much. He is one of the only people... Because we, we were like, a lot of people knew what movie they were in, and I'll give mm-hmm. them credit. But of all of them, Russell kept that character up the whole time. He knew what movie he was in, and he decided to have fun with it. He had a character. Yes. He had an actual character. If he was the narrator, holy shit, what a better movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, who could have been better? Seth Rogen. Interesting. He turned it down because he had zero confidence in his singing ability. Respect. Respect. <laughs> know, know thyself. Russell Brand's not like a singer singer, but he can sing. Sure. And if you give him a, a rock song to sing, he'll pull it out. He mm-hmm. does a good job. All right. Paul Giamatti playing Paul Gill. Okay. I mean. He's fine. He's being Paul Giamatti. He's playing a sleaze. Okay. Yeah. 
That doesn't really bother me. So, okay. But this character is totally unnecessary. Again, if we're going back to the musical, Gil is kind of there as far as I could read. But, mm-hmm. like, I don't think the Z guy thing happens at all. Like, Drew's working in a pizza shop when he hits rock bottom. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Like, I love the fact that in the musical, Drew gets this one shot at fame and then it just disappears because he decides he's done with Sherry. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I don't mention is that in the musical, Sherry actually sleeps with Stacey Jacks. Okay. And so then they they go through this whole conflict and and breaking up, but then they all realize that Stacey's a fucking terrible person. Yeah. Like, I don't have a problem with, like, the mistake, like, the mistaken thing. That's fine, too. But we made Stacy such an important character that he had to have the supporting character here. Sure. For I, no reason. Yeah, it's just uh, just to make him laugh. Yeah, no, it's just horrible. It's horrible. One note, his character is loosely based on Doc McGee, who managed Motley Crue and Ozzy Osbourne. Mm-hmm. Not a good dude. No. We have Catherine Zeta-Jones playing Patricia Whitmore. Okay, so knowing that her character doesn't exist in the actual play changes her character a little bit for me. She didn't have anything to base it off of. So for that, she gets a lot of points because her character's pretty believable. And like, you know, from the minute this woman is obsessed with Stacy, like, you know, she is and she just won't admit it. (laughs) Like, you know, that's the problem. At once, you both want to go superfluous, get rid of her. But on the other hand, I'm like, This is a tweak Mm -hmm. from the musical that I don't hate. No, I'm fine with it because I know that this is around the time when like a lot of that stuff was actually happening. So for some cultural context, okay, like I don't hate it, but you like they made her really gross instead of just being passionate. Like that's where it's wrong. Like she's just this, she's just gross. And so, yeah, I would rather have been like, really really passionate instead and but Catherine J. Jones love her love her in a musical yes she fucking rocks it like she she took whatever she could from this and was like well if it's gonna be like this I'm just gonna go for it sure who could have been better Gloria Estefan Mm -hmm. Gloria was so heavily favored for this role that at certain readings when Catherine Zeta Jones was not available Mm -hmm. she filled in Oh, weird. Yeah. That's that's bizarre. It's a little weird, but uh, Gloria Estefan, mm-hmm. I don't hate. No. I mean, the woman can fucking sing and dance oh, of like course. nobody's business. Okay, let's talk about another character that just doesn't need to be here. Mullen Ackerman playing Constance Sack. Yep. Why is this character even in this movie? I, I, I don't know. Why bother? I mean, I know why, because you now made Stacy a main character, so he's got to have a love interest. Mm-hmm. That was their logic. When in reality, Stacy should be a fucking villain. So then you have a villain. Yep. Because Patricia is not a villain. That's <laughs> just... Mullen Eckerman is fine. Like, she's really good, especially in a certain lane. You put her in a rom-com, great. Mm-hmm. But the character's so superfluous that... She just feels like she's there to be a blonde music video model. Mm-hmm. Like, that's it. And of course, the second they walk her in, they play the opening lick for Hot for Teacher. That makes it fun, like, honestly. I guess, but it's just, when you then understand that it was like, hey, there was an actual story here, and they mm-hmm. just threw this in for no good reason, I go, well, then this is just fucking gratuitous for being gross, and I fucking hate it. Mm-hmm. Who could have been better? Two actresses who were engaged in superhero projects at the time, Anne Hathaway and Amy Adams. Okay, I can see that. Also, who could have been better? Gwyneth Paltrow and Olivia Wilde. No to Gwyneth Paltrow, yes to Olivia Wilde. Anne Hathaway and Amy Adams should not be in this movie. It would be painful to have to watch them do that. I could see either one of them has the acting ability to be in this movie. Yes, absolutely. And do a fabulous job. Okay, let's just be like, they could. Oh, agreed. They could. They they could. But in this world where this movie actually exists, no. Olivia Wilde, yes. The rest of them, no. I got a few more to go. Let's go with Mary J. Blige playing Justice. Uh, I like her. Is, is her character in the stage play? Yes. Okay. So the stripper angle is a part of the actual stage show. She okay. She does become a dancer and 
then decides, you know, I'm just going to make enough to get back to Oklahoma. It's fine. But like, there's also that element still of like, yeah, but you're stiff and wooden when you're acting. Sure. Anyway, let's talk about somebody who just phoned it in completely. Alec Baldwin playing Dennis Dupree. Yeah, you can tell he doesn't care. Oh my God. Which is fine. (laughs) That's the weird part. Like you say, it kind of works for Dennis. Of all the characters to kind of have that detached phoned in attitude, it's that one. So there's a couple ways to read this. You can think Alec Baldwin is clearly doesn't give a fuck about this and just did it for the money. Okay, but that still works for his character. So like he earned his paycheck. It's the weirdest confluence. Yes. There's this huge level of give up, and yet that's Dennis. Yep. So it works out. He has disowned the film publicly. He calls it a, quote, horrible movie, unquote, and he's correct. I agree. And he stated the only reason he took the role was to work with Tom Cruise. Huh. And you know that's probably why he got cast in Mission Impossible later. You know what? Good for him. Good for them. Mm-hmm. Who could have been better? Both discussed for Dennis Dupree, Will Ferrell and Steve Carell. Either of them would have been really interesting, especially with Russell Brand. I think Will Ferrell would have been the better choice with Russell Brand. Possibly. Because of the absurdity. Will Ferrell can do absurd so well. He loves absurd. He loves the uncomfortable thing. And Steve Carell, I think, would not hit the right tone with that. Oh, but Dennis is a straight man. Steve Carell's really good at that. Eh, sort of. Also, Steve Carell's going to look a little bit better in a hippie straight hair wig. I'm not going to lie. But Will Ferrell, uh, give, give him the hide fro from, like <laughs> from that 70s show, which he's totally had before, too. Yeah. Um, that would have worked great. Um, Interesting flavors, both of them. I think he, because Will Ferrell can play straight man, too but also lean in and heighten the absurdity. He would be so great at that. And they're both really tall, and I would enjoy that. (laughs) And finally, we've talked about this guy a little bit. Mm -hmm. Just a little. Tom Cruise playing Stacey Jacks. Oh, um, he's he's not super well-known actor guy. Mm, Only talked about him for an entire series run, plus The Outsiders, plus Rain Man. Oh, yeah, we've talked about him a lot. And yeah, so we're not talking about his credits anymore. No. He is actually really good in this. His costuming is wrong because it's it's too out there. Like, I'm sorry, the cod piece is just, <laughs> it's gross for no reason. And they should have gone like more the flavor of that rock guy in School of Rock that's hitting on Joan Cusack's character, where he's just like all abs and like, his pants barely cover his crotch and just like he's just so dripping with sex and hotness that's more the vibe and this is more like in your face violent sexuality and i that's what i don't like about it he is doing his best Mm -hmm. to dive into the character Mm -hmm. it's just that anytime he has to say the lines it undercuts the character he's created like he clearly went I'm actually going to figure out who this is. I'm going to dive in. He does this with every role. Like, that's his thing. Like, even Ethan Hunt, who is a pretty simple on-paper character, Mm -hmm. you can tell he's done the preparation to think through, how is this actual person going to react in this way? Mm -hmm. He he really takes that to heart. And, you know, we've talked about him. We're like, as an actor, he's a responsible and thoughtful actor. Mm Mm-hmm. And he really dove into the role. It's just that anytime he has to say the lines, it just destroys whatever work he's done. It makes him look fucking ridiculous. And it's really, really annoying because I'm like, he's really doing a lot here, guys. You gave him nothing. (laughs) Yeah. It's frustrating because he he really nails what he was going for. Mm Mm-hmm. He admitted that he was terrified at the idea of performing in a musical. He'd never done it before. Yeah. But being Tom Cruise, he decided he was going to take it on as a challenge because that's what he fucking does. I like that. So he based his performance on Jim Morrison and Axl Rose. Those are great pulls. He nails both of them. 
He nails the sinewy movements, the the singing style, you know, the look and that vibe of Axl Rose as a performer. And he nails just the sloppy, messy alcoholicness of Jim Morrison, mm-hmm. who also had some of that slithery vibe, too. But like he's he's pulling like the real life stuff from Morrison for sure. You can see it. Mm-hmm. And he nails it. Absolutely. A thousand percent because he's Tom fucking Cruise and he's that good. He rehearsed for five hours a day for four and a half months doing voice lessons so his voice would be in shape to be able to do what he did. And, you know, it's not the best performance, but again, that's because of how it's produced. Sure, but his voice is not a problem. No. He sings that opening lick of Guns N' Roses and you're like, well, damn, Tom Cruise. You did good. You did a good. Mm Mm-hmm. He can fucking do it. His workouts also included push-ups and ab workouts because, you know, he was going to have to show off his tummy quite a bit in this movie. Sure, of course it did. (laughs) Of course it did. If there's anybody other than Chris Dorenzio that I feel really bad for, it's Tom Cruise. Mm -hmm. Sure. Because he actually fucking tried and a lot of people didn't. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about Arpons. Arpons? Yeah, there's some Arpons. Brian Cranston playing Mike Whitmore. Mm Mm-hmm. Will Forte playing Mitch Miley, also one of the low-key best parts of this movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. He's so funny. He's in it for five minutes, but God damn it, when, he, when they're doing the We're Not Gonna Take It mashup mm-hmm. song, and, and he's, he's running like, back and forth with the microphone. It's so funny. It's the stupidest thing. Mm-hmm. Eli Roth shows up in this movie playing Stefano. Okay. Oh, he's the music video director. Yes, that, uh, that is him. Okay. Okay, perfect. He's such an asshole. He's perfect. He's perfect as an asshole. TJ Miller playing the Rolling Stone receptionist. Boo. Boo. But he's fun in his little moment. Mm-hmm. I too love the, okay, bye. <laughs> oh, sure. It's great. Who are you? Oh, Why God. am I supposed to care? Playing a dancer? Derek Huff. Sure. He's got a little role here. Sure. As one of Stacy's bodyguard, Kevin Nash, a well-known wrestler from the WWE. And then during the we're not going to take it, we built this city sequence. Mm-hmm. We have a number of rockers that are supporting Lonnie. Yeah. They include Nuno Betancourt, the lead guitarist for Extreme, who did the song More Than Words. Joel Hoekstra, a touring musician who works with Night Ranger, who did Sister Christian, Whitesnake, who did Here I Go Again, and Trans-Siberian Orchestra. But most importantly, he was an original band member of the Broadway production. That's cool. Debbie Gibson. Mm-hmm. I mean, that it's Debbie fucking Gibson. Little different to recognize because she had red hair all through the 80s. She is now very much blonde. Mm-hmm. Sebastian Bach. I mean, I could pick him out so easily. Love him so much. He's a treasure. Why wasn't he in this movie? Like, for real in this movie? He would have been fabulous. He could have been Dennis, for fuck's sake. Uh, Him as Dennis or him as Lonnie would have been good. I mean, he does have acting chops. He was amazing in Gilmore Girls. He's such a good actor, and... Mm -hmm. The fact that he's so tied to the scene. They fucking play I Remember You in the movie. I know. And they play his version of it from 89. But mm-hmm. they just gave him one little moment. Fuck it. And finally, the lead singer and guitarist of Ario Speedwagon, Kevin Cronin, is in the crowd as well. Okay. So they got some fun pulls. Uh, and Ario Speedwagon, of course, has a song here that um, Lonnie and uh, Dennis... Have a have a moment. Uh, yep. <laughs> Which I like. That was one of the few times where I went, you know, this works. I'm not mad. No, I'm not mad about it either. All right, trivia. Mm-hmm. I promise we're almost done with this stupid fucking movie. For the premiere, Poison and Def Leppard performed with a bourbon room backdrop. Okay. And Def Leppard dedicated Pour Some Sugar on Me to, quote, our good friend Stacy Jacks. Cute. This was actually pretty funny because while they were filming, Def Leppard was touring in America, Mm -hmm. so they were able to be there and watch filming when Tom Cruise filmed Pour Some Sugar on Me. Oh, that's cool. That was pretty fun. Pretty good. 
If you are watching closely, you will recognize that the dance sequence from Hit Me With Your Best Shot features choreography from the end of the Beat It music video. Hmm. <laughs> I, didn't, I, I mean, I didn't notice that, but okay. The song duel outside the club with the mom's group features the song We're Not Gonna Take It. This is doubly funny because Dee Snyder of Twisted Sister was one of the most outspoken critics of the PMRC in the 80s. He testified against them during the Senate hearings in 1985. Okay. D. Snyder and Frank Zappa were like the two biggest opponents of the Parents Music Resource Council in Tipper Gore. So it's pretty fun to put we're not going to take it on there. It's a, it's, a good, it's a good joke. It is a good joke. And I, I mean, yeah, no, I like, I like that. That is, an, I guess, an addition that is cheeky and fun, and I appreciate it. And the group of church ladies is officially called the Ladies' Organization to Stop Evil Rock Singers. Abbreviated, it is Losers. Perfect. <laughs> Ratings! Ratings. <laughs> For every movie, we have an individual rating system. Mm-hmm. Can we just do turds? They don't show up in this movie, but we could just do it. How many shots? Let's do shots. <sighs> How many Sister Christian records? <laughs> Sister Christians. I'm going to go one and a half. Oh. Because the music is fun. The music is fun. And when they're cheeky with it, it's fun. And there are some people who are trying. You know, Catherine Zeta-Jones, she's trying. She's fabulous. Tom Cruise, he's doing a good job. He's got shit to work with, but he's doing a good job. So overall, like, it's not a movie I want to watch. But as you and I commented after we finished it, I would gladly watch this again over Star is Born with Barbara Streisand any day. You, you tell me you don't want to hear Love Soft as an Easy Chair again? No. <laughs> no, I would rather see this bullshit. <laughs> okay. As somebody who grew up on classic rock, mm -hmm. it's going to be a one for me. Okay. I would tend to agree with you on most points, mm -hmm. except the fact that I think they staged it so badly and they botched the producing on the singing so badly. Uh -huh. Again, I don't think anybody's doing a bad job singing wise per se, but I think you should have leaned into the imperfections of the singers mm -hmm. a lot more because they sure fucking did in the 80s. They didn't give a shit. Yeah. It was how loud and how wild can we make this? The best of the 80s hair metal scene, like not a lot of the the music that we're hearing from this show. It, this was all like pop masquerading as hair metal. Mm -hmm. But like the real shit that played at the Sunset Strip, these guys were fucking nuts. Mm. Like we're talking early Van Halen. So to me, it's just like you took a bunch of pretty good songs and just glossed over them to the point where they don't have any of that feeling they had before. And the mashups don't work for me. Like it's just like you have such good songs already. Just make them work. You don't need to shove them together. The one exception being we're not going to take it versus we built this city. I'm okay with that because yeah. you've got an actual fight. Yeah, it, it, that mashup makes sense. But just there's so much fuckery going on with it that it, it makes me not want to listen to the music even. And, and for that, I just, again, you just took a pile of money and set it on fire. At least some of it was watchable, but it's a one for me. Okay. <sighs> it's all fair. Wow. Wow. Yeah. We ended on that. Yeah, that's unfortunate. There were so many good movies, though. There were. This is a great series, and we'll definitely be doing it again because there's just there's still so many more that we do we do need to watch. There's so many amazing musicals. We got lots of good surprises. I mean, I think about Forty Second Street and being like, "Wow!" Yeah, we were like, we were shocked. I was not ready for 1930s giving me one of my favorite movies of the series. Yeah, no, it was fabulous. We had, you know. Le Parapluie, which was just delightful. And um, we'll never stop talking about Fiddler on the Roof ever again. Mm -mm. Never. We, David and I are still yelling those things at each other. And of course, who will ever forget Lonnie and Dennis making out to Aria Speedwagon? I mean, that's really enjoyable. That's a true, wonderful moment. Mm. Well, we are at the end of one series and we are mm -hmm. headed in to another series, one of our most important series. Of every season. Yes, before that, because we've had a return to movies, this year we're bringing back our year in movies review. 
Ooh. where where we talk about our favorites and our our maybe our least favorites from what we saw this year because we actually had a really big uh, swath of uh, new stuff to watch this year. But then after that comes our favorite season of the year. Do y'all remember about a week ago when I said we're changing things up for awards? Mm-hmm. That's because we have another Oscars year. Mm-hmm. It's 1982. Yes. We enjoy doing the year, uh, especially the older years, because it gives us a really nice collection of things we haven't seen. And you get such an interesting perspective. It's fun to have those awards arguments. It's like, did this one really make sense? It was this worth it? And what's fun is when we've seen a movie, they're like, oh, yes, of course it deserved it. And then we go back and we watch another movie from the same year that just happened to be in the same category. And we're like, wait, what? Oh, no, now I changed my response. <laughs> because we have that context of that competition. And so that's what's, you know, that's what we love about watching the Oscars now. Uh, so it's fun to take that lens when we're, we're looking back. What's fun is we've already seen a couple of the movies from this year mm-hmm. for the show. even. Yep. We talked about Victor Victoria. And even before that, we talked about an officer and a gentleman. Yep. So we've already gotten a little bit of a head start here. But um, again, even more than 75, this is a very diverse year of movies. Yes, and and to try to like keep it varied, we're going by release date in the year, mm-hmm. so that that's how we're determining our order of the films we're gonna watch. It's going to be a very interesting journey. Yep. So we're doing Oscar-nominated films from 1982. So look out for a year in review, and then the most wonderful time of the year mm-hmm. of next year. All right. Well, until next time, have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. (laughs) 